probably a lot of you know my face by now because I'm usually playing the drums. But my name is Josh. Uh, my wife is Annie. She's sitting at this table up here with Lexi and Shayla. Um, Joe asked me to give the message this morning, so we're going to continue in the book of Mark. Actually, we're going to finish off the book. So we left off last week. Joe taught on Mark 15, and I'm going to go ahead and read the full text of Mark 16, and then we'll get into it. So Mark chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe. And they were amazed. And he said to them, do not be amazed. You were looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they had laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. When they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. After that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along their way to the country. They went away and reported it to the others, but they did not believe them either. Verse 14, afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. And he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. But he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked through them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. So we left off last week in chapter 15 with the burial of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea had gone to the Romans and requested permission to take down the body of Jesus and bury it. So so Joseph took the body, wrapped it up, buried it in a tomb. And a large rock was rolled in front of the entrance to the tomb. And this all happened Friday evening. And it had to happen. It had to happen before sundown. Why? It had to happen before sundown because of the Sabbath. And that's the first thing that I wanted to look at is just give a little bit of context for why do we meet on Sunday mornings? I was looking at the historical context of this. Because most of us are probably aware, traditionally the Jewish Sabbath, Orthodox Jews, they still recognize the Sabbath as being Saturday. So when did it switch? I was curious about the history of this. So I wanted to look at it for a second before we get to the rest of the text. So the Sabbath was the last day of the week, which was instituted by God at creation. He created for six days, and on the last day of the week, the seventh day, he instituted a day of rest. And when the Israelites became a nation, and he anointed them as his people, 
he instituted for them to recognize this day of rest as well, this Sabbath day. Now, days at that time were measured from sundown to sundown. We could say that we maybe measure it from midnight to midnight per our calendars. Probably practically speaking, we might measure it from morning till morning. When we wake up in the morning, it's a new day. When I wake up the next morning, it's the next new day. But for these people, they considered it sundown to sundown. So as soon as the sun set, the previous day was over and the new day had begun. So Jesus is killed on Friday. And Joseph of Arimathea, before the Sabbath comes, he needs to get his work done because nothing can be done with the body of Jesus during this 24-hour period from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. So then I was wondering, well, when did we switch to the when did we switch to Sunday? Are we supposed to meet Saturday? Are we doing something wrong by having our Sunday services? I don't know. Let's find out. So then Sunday would have been the first day of the week. If Saturday was the Sabbath, Sunday would have been the first day of the week. And there are a couple mentions of people gathering in the New Testament on Sunday, the day after the Sabbath. Not that many, though. We'll, we'll look at what they are. The first gathering that we notice is the disciples are gathering the day after Sabbath, Immediately the weekend, Jesus is killed, and they're mourning and weeping. So this is the first instance of the disciples gathering on a, the day after the Sabbath, which would the Scripture refers to the day after the Sabbath. They call it the first day of the week. So if you're looking for a reference, I found that as I was looking for references to Sundays, of course they don't call them Saturdays or Sundays, but their first day of the week in Scripture would be probably what is our Sunday now. So they gathered the first day of the week then, in Acts 20, it's also recorded that the first day of the week, Paul was teaching people in a room, and that was the story, if you're familiar, where Paul starts teaching in the evening, and he teaches late into the night. He teaches until midnight because he was about to leave the next morning, and he wanted to give the people as much as he could. So he's teaching late into the night, and a kid is sitting on the windowsill listening to him, and he falls out the window and dies, and Paul goes out, and they bring him back to life, and he goes back in. And he's fine. But they were meeting then. There was, they were meeting on the first day of the week there. So maybe there's the precedent for us meeting on Sundays. And then one more time, Paul writes in uh, his first letter to the Corinthians, he writes that on the first day of the week, I want you to take a collection. I want you to set aside resources to give to the saints as they're going along on their, their journeys of ministry. It's a blessing to God. It's a blessing to the saints. And he tells them, establish this practice on the first day of the week of making your collections so that you can donate to the work of the gospel, to the work of the kingdom of God. So maybe that's where we get the tradition of meeting on Sundays instead of traditionally Saturdays. I'm not sure. But then again, if we look back at what time, what time did their day start? Their day started at sundown. So really, if they were meeting on the first day of the week that started after sundown, our Saturday night service here might be the holiest service that we have because that starts Saturday night after sundown. So if you're worried about this, go to the Saturday night service. It's the holiest service. Just kidding. No, it's not. It's not because let's look at Romans 14, 5 and 6. Romans 14, 5 and 6. This is one person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. So I don't know. Are we right or wrong to meet on Sunday or Saturday? I don't think so. If you consider it to be a special day on Saturday to keep that Sabbath, 
go on Saturday and do it for the Lord. If you consider it to be Sunday morning that we've set aside this time for the Lord, do it for the Lord and come on Sundays. It's good to see you. So that's the history that I was able to find on our weekend services. Why do we do it the way we do? Eh, We do it the way we do because that's the way we've done it. I don't know. So let's move on. Back to Mark 16. Oh, no, I lost my place. Back to Mark 16. I'm not going to go too in-depth on to who these women were, but I'll just remind you who they were because we've talked about them for the whole rest of the book of Mark. But a brief summary. So these three women, we have Mary Magdalene, who was the woman, it tells us later, out of whom Jesus had cast seven demons. And she became a steadfast follower. She traveled with him and the disciples throughout Jesus' ministry. Then you have Salome, who was the mother of James and John, the disciples, James and John. Has anybody, show of hands, who's seen the TV series The Chosen? Has anybody seen any part of it? Okay, quite a few people. I thought it was pretty good. It helped me to put a face to a name and sort of keep some of these relationships and names correct. So there were two disciples named James, and actually there's presumably a third James in the New Testament, at least three Jameses. So we have, we have here uh, Salome is one of these three women. She's the mother of one of the James, James and his brother John, who were disciples. And then the other Mary here is the mother of James the Younger, or James the Lesser. If you've ever referred to him as James the Lesser or James the Younger, it just means there were two James. They referred to one as Little James, James the Younger. I think in the, in, uh, the Chosen they called him Big James and Little James to help you differentiate. So those are the three women, Mary Magdalene, and then two of the mothers of some of the disciples. These are the women who came to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body. So they come to the tomb. They find that it's empty. They hear this message from the angel. And what does the angel say in verse 7? Go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. And he delivers the rest of the message. Why does he specifically single out Peter? I had never looked at this before. It wasn't until I was, Joe had asked me to teach Mark 16 that I started looking into why did he specifically mention Peter. But then I pretty quickly realized Peter's last interaction with Jesus probably didn't leave Peter feeling too encouraged and good about himself. Why? Because, let's look back, Mark 14. Mark 14, verse 27, Jesus is talking to the disciples, and he said, you will all fall away, because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all of them were saying the same thing. But Peter's very adamant about this. I will not deny you, Lord. Well, we jump ahead to verse 66 in Mark 14. And what does Peter do? It says as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you were with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are talking about. And he went out onto the porch, and the servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, this is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. But he began to curse and swear and say, I do not know this man you are talking about. Immediately a rooster crowed a second time. 
And Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him that before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. So Peter's last interaction with Jesus is to claim adamantly, I will never deny you. I will not deny you, Lord. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And what does he do? He denies him adamantly three times. And he recognizes this when the sign that Jesus had prophesied came to pass. The rooster crows twice. Peter has this realization, oh no, I did it. I did, I, I did what I said I wouldn't do. I denied the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And he's weeping. So just try to imagine what that would have done to his heart. What would he think of his own relationship with Jesus? Would he consider himself worthy of associating with Jesus at all anymore after this? After having straight up denied him, and he made the biggest deal out of claiming, I will not deny you. And then he does. He denies him. How do you think Peter feels about himself right now? But Jesus had something different in mind for Peter's heart. The angel specifically says, go tell the disciples and Peter. He specifically remembers Peter. He specifically says, Peter is not not separate because of what he's done. Peter has not been cut off from being counted among the disciples because of what he's done. He's specifically remembered and mentioned here. And not only is he specifically remembered, but he's specifically remembered by his new name. Because if you'll recall, Peter's name was originally Simon. The name that he was given when he was born was Simon. And Jesus says, I'm now calling you Peter. I'm calling you Cephas the rock of the church. If we look back to Luke's account of the interaction between Jesus and the disciples, when the disciples are saying, we will not deny you, and Jesus is saying, "Uh, you will. You will deny me. If we look back to Luke's account, it says in Luke 22, 31, Jesus calls him Simon. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat. But I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. So in this last interaction, Luke actually records that Jesus called him Simon. He called him by his old name. But what we see here, when the angel is telling these women, go tell the disciples and who? And Peter. He refers to him as his new name. And what stuck out to me here is that Jesus didn't refer to, to Peter as, this old, as his old natural name, his old man-given name. Jesus referred to him as Peter, the new name that Jesus himself bestowed on Peter. So not only did Jesus remember him, he remembered him as the renewed, transformed version of the man that he was. So he wasn't saying, Simon, remember what you did? Well, I'll take you anyway. He was saying, Peter, You're the new person that I turned you into being. And I want you to know this message. I want you to hear that I'm alive because you're still a part of this. Jesus was waiting for Peter's repentance and turn back to him after his denial with open arms. And he's doing the same thing for us. The Lord has taken specific care to welcome each and every one of us. Even when we feel the most unworthy because we've rejected him. Whoever in their Christian walk. Well, actually, just by show of hands, who was raised a Christian, born into a Christian house? I'm just curious. Raised a Christian. So maybe 
Oh, maybe less than a quarter of us. That's cool. And then who, so who became a Christian, let's say, let's say, I don't know, young adult life, like teens to 20s. Who became a Christian in that, in that time frame? So you've been a Christian for, for a little longer. And then who got saved at some other point later in life? So there's a, quite a spread here. We've got people saved at different points in time. Some people were, grew up in the church. I grew up in the church. I, would, I always say, I don't think I necessarily took it seriously until my teens, though. I'll tell that story maybe another time. But anyways, whoever has had an experience where as a Christian, so you are already saved, you're already claiming to walk with the Lord, but you do something and you just feel this gut-wrenching oh, separation from God. Who's ever done something as a Christian and you felt, I do not feel that close to God right now? Okay, so I'm not alone. And Peter wasn't alone. And imagine the depth of that emotional feeling for him. He, sp- he was walking with Jesus Christ himself. And he denied him in front, of, in front of people after claiming that he would have died with him and never denied him. That must have been that, that separation feeling on steroids. That would have been horrible. But Jesus has taken specific care to point each one of us out and say, I remember you. You have not done anything so awful that I can't redeem you and pull you back to me. And it was making me think about our identity in Christ. The Gospel of John, the writer of the Gospel of John, referred to himself over and over again as the disciple who Jesus loves, the one who Jesus loves. And a a knowledge of our identity, that that's who each one of us is, is the one who Jesus loves, will bring about within us a peace that you really can't even explain. It's, it's, that sounds cliche, a peace that you can't explain. But it's true. And when your identity is so rooted in being a child of God, being a child in God's arms, being someone who is, who is loved deeply despite the things that we've done, that brings you a peace. And the writer of the Gospel of John knew that. He referred to himself as the one that Jesus loves. And this is what Jesus was doing when he calls Peter specifically by name, is he's restoring Peter's identity to him. Because just like the world does, Peter was getting identified by his past. Peter was identified as the disciple that rejected Jesus. If it weren't for Jesus restoring Peter and calling him a disciple, giving him a task to do, giving him that mission of spreading the gospel, Peter's identity probably for the rest of his life would have been, that's the the former disciple, Peter. That's the ex-disciple that denied Jesus. And that's what the world wants to call all of us. We do that too a little bit. We we call ourselves, well, what do you do? I I work for the public works department, my old job. Or what do you do? I, I work for this company, or I work at a school, or other people would maybe identify us as, well, that's so-and-so. He was, he's been in and out of jail his whole life. Or that's so-and-so. He's a, he's, a, he's a drug addict. We don't really talk about it. And that's the, that's the identification that the world gives us. These labels that the world gives us are based on our past. They're based on the things we do. They're based on the reputation of our family. Our identity is given to us by the world and it has nothing actually to do with our true identity in God. And what, what Jesus is doing, what the angel is doing for Peter here, is he's taking Peter and he's saying, no, you will not be identified as the disciple who denied me. You are being identified as Peter, the rock of the church. 
you're being identified as one that I have specifically called to share this message. If, you were, if I was going to boil that all down into one, one single point about what is the significance of him saying Peter and not Simon there when he calls him back, it would be that he's saying to him, you are not Simon, the one who denied and rejected Jesus. You are Peter. You are known specifically, remembered specifically. You are loved by the Savior of the world. And he has that same attitude towards all of us. Identity is crucial because that impacts how you walk when you're not really thinking about it. Sometimes, if you're trying to be on your best behavior, it's easy to act a certain way. But at the core of it, when you're not really thinking about how you're interacting with people, how you're behaving, how you're speaking during the day, all of your actions are going to flow out of that deepest part of you, which is your identity that you subconsciously believe all the time no matter what. And if you really understand this identity that has been given to us by Jesus Christ, that is loved, redeemed, child of God, righteous, out of those things will flow the actions that make you look like Jesus Christ, like we're designed to. So identity is an important thing. We need to understand that Jesus has specifically noticed us and called us and redeemed us. He is never calling us by our past actions. He is never calling us by our past failures and sins. So we'll move on to the next few verses. Brief contextual note for those of you who are interested in a little bit more of the scholarly aspect of Scripture, and I'm not too familiar with this part of it myself, so I'm not going to say too much. Is that a lot, These verses, it says, uh, 9 to the end of the chapter, the very, very oldest manuscripts of Mark don't actually include these. However, there are some later manuscripts that have been completely trusted by biblical scholars the accounts that are given in these following verses are all corroborated in Luke and in Matthew. So these, these, are, uh, these are scripture. These are reliable, trustworthy scripture. Biblical scholars all agree. The rest of scripture agrees. But for those of you who are interested in that sort of uh, rabbit trail side bit of knowledge there, that might be interesting to look into. I, I wish I knew more about the, just the technical logistics of translating scripture and finding these old manuscripts and pairing them together and how do we know who wrote what. I find that fascinating. I want to know more about it. So these verses in Mark, your Bible might have a note like that that says these are uh, found in slightly later manuscripts of Mark's, Mark's gospel. So we have a couple times through verse 9 and 12, or through, through 9 to, to 13, these women see Jesus and they go to tell the disciples and they don't believe him. And two other disciples see Jesus as they're walking to the country. And they go tell the disciples, we saw Jesus. They don't believe him. The disciples are not believing him. And it says in 14, afterward, after these things, after the disciples had already been told on multiple occasions, hey, Jesus is alive like he said he would be. And he came back like he said he would. They don't believe him. Jesus says, uh, Jesus comes back to them afterward. He appeared to the eleven themselves, verse 14, as they were reclining at the table. He reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. And then he delivers what we call the Great Commission. 
He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Verse 16, he who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. What is going on with that? Is that some sort of legalistic thing that if you haven't got baptized, you're not saved? What about just one, what was it, one chapter ago? Jesus is crucified and he says to the man hanging on the cross next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, that guy wasn't baptized. He was on a cross. Not likely he was surviving that to get off the cross and go get baptized and then die and then go be with him in paradise. So what's going on with that? Well, what is baptism? I guess we have to ask that question then. Baptism to merge the, the physical and the, the spiritual aspects of this, the physical and the symbolic aspects, baptism is the complete submersion underwater of the old you. And the one who comes up out of the water is a new person, died into the death of Christ, raised up into the resurrection of Christ. And Scripture says that you are a new creation. It says that the old is gone and the new has come. So the sinful person that went down under that water is completely gone. That man is dead. And the person that comes back up into the resurrection of Christ is alive in him. So we accept the salvation that Jesus offers. And we allow him to transform us into a new being. That's what this baptism is. This baptism is the death of our sinful nature and the resurrection of us as a person who is alive in the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. It's not, it's not just a confession from our mouth. It's not just some words that I say, the sinner's prayer, and now you're good to go. It's not, it's not, oh, well, at some point in your life, you said the sinner's prayer, and as an infant, you were sprinkled with water, so you're good to go. You've, you've hit the marks. You've checked the boxes to be saved. And you can see that it's not just a mouth confession. Jesus says it himself. If you look at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew Seven. It's towards the end of it, I think. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. You could call Jesus Lord and not enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because it says in Matthew 7 there, it says, he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. So this doesn't mean that it's a works-based thing. I don't have to do the right stuff to get into heaven. But the clarification that this is providing is that it's not just checking two boxes. Believe in Jesus, get baptized, you're good to go. It's believe in Jesus and allow that transformation to take hold of your life so that you are no longer the person that's, that's pre, pre-dunk. You're not the pre-dunk person. You're the post-dunk person. You're the guy that came up out of the water and has been transformed. A rejection of that transformation means that you probably don't really understand the fullness of what salvation is. It means that you might not totally grasp That Jesus didn't just give you a ticket to hang out with him for eternity. He has changed you here, now. So for you to believe in him, be baptized, receive that transformation, the death of my old man and the resurrection of my new man in Christ Jesus through a new person, that's salvation. Has anybody ever had by show of hands, have you ever in your Christian walk questioned your own salvation? Am I actually good with God? I can't be the only one who's wondered, am I actually good with God or not? Okay, so that's quite a few. Actually, it might be the majority. I'm glad I'm not the only one. Well, okay, a couple questions. Have you believed? 
well, if you've believed, then, you're, then, then check. If, have you accepted the transformation of your life? Then check. There's no question about your own salvation. If you have believed and you have honestly accepted, Jesus, I'm allowing you to transform my life. So what then if we still struggle with some kind of sin? I want to touch on this part a little bit before we move on because I don't want to just give one aspect of this story. Because stopping there would probably leave people with the question of, well, I'm struggling with something. I believe in Jesus. I've confessed him. I tell people about him. And there's something going on still. There's something that not a lot of people know about in my life or maybe nobody knows about in my life. There's still some kind of sin that I'm struggling with. I don't feel that transformed. 1 John 2.1 should give us some, some comfort here. First John 2, the first, I'll say two verses. My little children, he says, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So that same Jesus through whom your salvation was solidified, received, that same grace is available to us now. It's not like you do one thing wrong. Well, you obviously weren't transformed. You're out. Thankfully not, because none of us would be here. There's not a single person who would be here still if we all thought that way. So we have this same advocate to the Father in Jesus Christ. He's still an advocate for us the same way that he was when he said, Lord, look at this sinful person. Look at him now. I just washed him in my blood. That same blood covers us from now until the end of time. However, I've probably got a couple howevers going now if you're counting. However, the standard does remain the same. So while we don't want to be discouraged that, oh, I'm struggling with something still, we need to be aware of what the standard is and be aware of the tools that have been given to us through the Holy Spirit to actually walk out this transformation. There's never a moment where we're doing it of our own strength. We've been given the Holy Spirit. I won't read this part, but if you want, if you want more encouragement on, on this issue of, of sin as believers, well, for one thing, I'll say in James it says, uh, confess your sin one to another that you may be healed. So there's healing in the confession of sin to one another. There's healing in not keeping it a secret anymore. There's healing in being transparent and saying, I'm struggling with this sin. I've, I've, got, a, I've got a porn problem. I've got a drug problem. I've got XYZ problems. There's healing in confessing that to someone and saying, I understand that this is not my identity, but somehow this has crept into my life a little bit more again, and I want out. I want to lay full hold of what Jesus paid for me to have. I heard a preacher say that if you can't stop sinning until you die, then Jesus isn't your Savior. Death is your Savior. Uh, and I thought, that can't be right. Death can't be my Savior. So I was looking at, what do we have? What do we have to defeat sin? Well, we have the Holy Spirit. That was what was given to us at this time of salvation. At that moment when you received Jesus Christ, you were gifted this Holy Spirit. And it says in Galatians, this is the last thing I'll say about this sin issue. It says in Galatians 5, the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit. And the Spirit desires what is contrary to the flesh. 
So for every moment that you're walking by the Spirit, you are not gratifying the desires of the flesh. So what happens? What's, what's going on if I sin as a Christian? Well, if, if as a Christian, my life is mostly lived in this lane of the Spirit and I'm walking by the Spirit, what happens when I sin is that my flesh got a little tug this way. And I stepped and I walked by the flesh for a moment and I sinned. But that doesn't mean that I'm not transformed. All it means is step back into line with the Spirit. Confess your sin to somebody. Ask them to help you. Hey, keep me accountable. Hey, I've got this thing going on. I heard Actually, my brother said this. I don't know if he got it from somewhere else, but I'll give him the credit. He said, embarrass the sin before it embarrasses you. So if you've got something going on, make it transparent. I've never heard of a believer being ridiculed for confessing something transparently before they've been before it's become a scandal depending on who you are maybe it hits the news like like these pastors of big name churches and worship groups and everything else that are involved in some sort of sin when it becomes a scandal and the sin embarrasses you that might be a little bit harder it might be a little bit harder on your reputation it might be a little bit harder on your witness as a as a believer Embarrass the sin before it embarrasses you. I have enormous respect for people who are willing to say, come out and say, I'm making this the moment where I confess that I've got an issue with some kind of sin and I want out. I want help because I know this is not who I am. And that should be an encouragement to us. We have that through the Holy Spirit, the ability to walk by the Spirit and not gratify the desires of the flesh. So I got all the way there from the whole baptism thing. But that's what it is. Baptism is this transformation. The old man is dead under the water. A new man is raised into life in righteousness with Christ. That's who we are. He who has believed and been baptized, accepted this transformation that Jesus brings, will be saved. He who has disbelieved shall be condemned. We'll pick up in verse 17. These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. They will pick up serpents. Paul was a direct example of this. If you look in Acts 28, there's a story of Paul is on an island and he's with some other people and they go to light a fire. He's gathering wood for a fire and they start the fire and the heat of the fire drives a snake out and the snake comes and latches onto Paul's hand and everybody's worried Paul's going to die. He just got bit by a snake. What does Paul do? He shakes the snake off into the fire, and he's completely unharmed. That's literally exactly what Jesus said. Something like a snake. God is not going to allow a snake bite to end the work that you're doing for the kingdom of God. If they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. I, this, this is a slightly less on-the-nose example, but uh, there's a... Has anybody ever heard of John G. Lake, evangelist, early 19th? Or late 19th century, okay, one person. Not, so not many people. So John G. Lake, he was born in uh, late 1800s. And he lived until the early 1900s. And he ministered a lot. I want to say it was South Africa. I could be wrong. Tell me afterwards. If you know more about him, tell me who he was. John G. Lake ministered a lot in Africa. And there's this story that he tells. He recounts this time when he was ministering there. And it was during the outbreak of some type of plague. I don't know what it was, a virus, a a bacterial plague. I don't know what it was, some kind of germs. 
and people are dying. The germs are staying alive in, in people's bodies after they've died. So he's assisting those families. He's supporting them. He's burying the dead. He's going into the houses where the sickness exists, and he's taking people out. And a medical ship comes, and they say, John, what protection are you using against this disease? And he says, what protection am I using? I'm using the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. That's what he said to them. I'm using the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And they said, what are you talking about? He said, you want to do an experiment and see what I'm talking about? Take some of the foam out of the mouth of one of these dead people. So they take the foam out of the mouth and they put it under a microscope and they see all these living germs, bacteria, virus, whatever it was. And it's still alive. It's still alive under the microscope. And he says, now put it on my hand. And they said, okay. And they put it on his hand. And then they looked at it at a micros- under a microscope again. And all of those bacteria were dead. The moment that that stuff touched the skin of the man of God who had put his, his faith in God to keep him safe as he did the work of God, the germs couldn't touch him. So here's another example of a time when... Both Paul and John G. Lake, they lived in the world. But these things in the world cannot, cannot harm someone who isn't actually of the world. God's got different plans. He's not going to let something like a snake end Paul's work for the kingdom of God. And it's important to understand exactly what that means so that you don't end up like some of these churches in other places. Churches, I'm sure they're few and far between. You ever seen those churches that'll do snake handling services specifically because of this verse? And then you read some story in the news that, oh, the pastor of that church died. Why did he die? A snake bite. Okay. (laughs) Big shock. Because this wasn't a verse meant for their entertainment. He didn't give them some cool like parlor trick that they can perform for their friends. He said, God is not going to allow your work for the kingdom to be cut short because you got bit by a snake. This is another gift that he has given us as we go to spread the gospel. So I'm going to wrap up. Uh, Jimmy and Shayla, do you guys want to come back up for another song? We'll look at the last two verses here while they're coming up. So 19 and 20. Then when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. So at Calvary, at Calvary, we, we're not uh, one of the churches that believes that those gifts have ceased. There are churches that believe that those gifts were for a certain time or they were for only the apostles and the, those original disciples. They were meant to help establish the church, but now we don't need them anymore. Calvary doesn't believe that. And one of the reasons, one of the reasons that Calvary chapels don't believe that is this verse. Because it gives us the reason for why do these gifts follow believers? What is the purpose of these things? The Lord worked with them, confirming the words by the signs that followed. God will always back up His word with His power. Even from creation you see this. God spoke the words first. And the power of God brought those things into being. God will back up His word by His power. So I'm going to pray... So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray this. Jimmy and Shayla will lead us in one more song and then 
we'll move on in our day. But just to wrap up, what, did, what is it that we learned in this chapter, or at least what did I decide to take from this today? Well, one is that we're specifically loved and noticed by God. The same Jesus that remembered Peter, called him by his new name, welcomed him back in repentance, remembers each of us by our new name, by our new identification as righteous. So each specific person here is identified as belonging to Jesus if you've accepted him. We talked about baptism and how are we saved? Well, believing and being baptized. If we believe and we've accepted this transformation, then we are saved. We are walking with the Lord. And if you have, if you have some kind of sin issue, tell somebody. Let it be today. And I'm going to pray that for us, that we have the courage to confess something. If we need to get it off our chest and live transparently, I'll pray that God gives us the courage to do that. And then finally, we talked about the power that the Holy Spirit gives us to back up this word. As we're sharing it, we're not going and sharing alone. The words aren't ours, the words are God's. And the power is not ours, the power is God's. And it's all to point people to God. So I'm going to pray. And if there's anybody here who has not yet accepted Jesus, if you would not say that before today you've not believed and you've not been baptized, you've not been transformed, if that's you, but you want today to be the day that you do choose to believe, you see the people around you, you see the transformation of life, you see that people are walking differently, you see that people are freed from addictions and struggles, then let this be your day. So if that's you, and you're going to choose to accept Jesus today, say, I believe that you've died to pay the penalty that I owed for my sins, but I'm going to let you pay that for me. And I'm going to let you change me. Just put your hand up so I can see it. Do we have anybody today? I see you. Do we have anybody else? All right, good. Well, let's give the Lord a hand. It says the angels are rejoicing in heaven every time one person is added. And if that was you, tell the person that you came with that you did that. And then you who brought that friend, this is your responsibility now to get them hooked up. Get them a Bible if they don't have one. Get them discipled. Get them into a, a, a small group if that seems best. You meet with them, disciple them if that seems best. But don't leave them hanging. All right, so I'm going to pray for the rest of us and then we'll sing one more song. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the transformation that you brought. Lord, I pray for a couple things. I pray you would give us courage to confess our sins one to another, that we may be healed, as it says in James. That you would make us a body that is transparent with the way that we live, so that we're not hiding things because of shame, but that we'd be walking in full assurance of our salvation, and that no sin would be allowed to embarrass us and be a bad witness because we are, we are walking in transparency. Sin is not a good witness, but Lord, you are an excellent witness of your own glory. So, so let us live that out. And Lord, I also pray that you give us a new revelation of our identity in you, that we would not ever be tricked into identifying ourselves by our past, by our failings, by our family reputations, 
if they're negative. I pray that you would give us a new revelation of our identity, that we belong to you, we are loved, we are righteous in you. And Holy Spirit, I ask you to flow through us in power. As we're going out and we're living for you, I pray that you would flow through us, and that it would be obvious that we're not just spouting off, sharing, sharing whatever comes to the top of our mind, but that we're speaking the words of God, and that we're allowing the power of God to back that up. So we pray all this in Jesus' name. And let's worship one more time before we go. Thank God again, that bridge. You heard your children then. You heard your children. You hear your children. You are his
Let's close with this. Lord, prepare me. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true, with pray for the food. We got food in the back. Um, Let me pray for the food. Lord, we thank you for this day again. Um, We thank you for this meal. Bless the hands that prepared it, Lord. Um, Bless the bless the conversations, Lord, that we have while we eat. And um, we just, again, we thank you. We just rest in you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Get some food. Hang out. Peace.